stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're bringing you stories that come from a partnership with Signal Boost. Signal Boost is an initiative from the Wheeler Centre, offering funding, tailored mentorship, practical support, and professional development for aspiring Australian podcasters. Told from the view of five Somalis now in Australia, our first story illustrates the diversity in Somali diaspora. By sharing unique migration journeys and relationships to heritage, it's a reminder that people from the same cultural background are not a homogenous entity. I remember when I went solo backpacking in New Zealand, I was hiking through this mountain alone. And I remember hearing people speaking Somali in the distance. At that point, I'd been overseas by myself for two weeks, so I thought I was going insane. And I get closer to the source of the, the noise, and I see the Somali family, a husband, a wife, and a daughter. And my mouth drops. I'm like, what is a Somali family doing in the wilderness? And the daughter was, I think, four years old, so she couldn't really walk through mountains. She was being carried by her father. And then they also had their jaws dropped. They were wondering, what is a Somali boy doing here by himself? And so I said, assalamu alaikum, they said, wa alaikum salam. And it was an instant connection, like, boom, we exchanged numbers. And a few weeks later, we hung out again. That is Abdullah Omar, a young Somali filmmaker from Melbourne, Australia. I think his experience is exactly what it's like to be Somali. We love our people. We could be in a far-flung place and then the moment we hear or see another Somali, it's an instant connection. There are Somalis everywhere in the world, from the UK to Sweden to Malaysia to the United States and even countries in Eastern Europe. We are a sprawling diaspora scattered across the world. Hi, I'm Najma Sambal. I'm a Somali writer and journalist from Melbourne. I was born in Kenya in 1995 and my family came to Australia as refugees in 1998. We'd actually never heard of Australia before and a lot of Somalis had fled to countries in Europe and North America. And it's kind of by sheer luck that we ended up moving to Australia. When we came to Tasmania in the late 90s, there were just a couple of Somali families. It was weird being a part of a tiny community in a place that felt so foreign. It was isolating to be so far away from other Somali people and our home.
Nowadays, it's really different. There are thousands of us living all around Australia. So what does our community look like now? And what are their thoughts on their connection to Somalia today? I spoke to five different Somalis living across Australia. Hi, my name is Kate Jama. I live in Nam, Melbourne. Hi, my name is Naima. I'm 30. I live on Daru country. Hi, my name is Awala Ahmed. I'm 38 years old and I'm from Melbourne. Magaigua West Abdu Umr, Degan Magaladapeth, Egalbeth, Australia. Hello, Salam Alaikum. My name is Abdullah Umar. I am 22 years old. I reside in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I wanted to know what brought them to Australia. Kate is a researcher in international law and her family was here in the 1800s. My father is from Hargeza, Somaliland. However, my father's grandfather lived in what is now known as Western Australia for five years in the late 1800s. He was a worker on a merchant ship. My mother is British. My parents met in London and migrated here in the 1970s. And just like myself, Naima and Dr. Awais came to Australia as refugees. I came to Australia as a child with my family as refugees. وحن دركن سوق اللي يكون يصغر بقول يتدوي سعاشن كي 1997 كدب مركي عن قصة عرض لعرض السكيد during the civil war a lot of Somalis also fled to Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia which is where Awale migrated from I was born in Somalia and I moved to Saudi Arabia with my family due to the civil war. Uh, I moved to Melbourne six years ago in May 2016 as a skilled migrant based on my engineering degree. I moved to Australia looking for opportunity and acceptance and I found both. And Abdullah, who we heard from at the beginning, came to Australia from New Zealand. My family and I migrated to Australia in 2012. We sort of ended up in Australia following the wave of other Somali people transitioning from Auckland to Melbourne. Being a part of the Somali diaspora is pretty special. It has created a community for me and a love for my roots and the culture I come from. Are you enjoying it? <laughs> it even makes everyday moments like eating Somali food with my family and friends memorable. There's no denying that Somalis love their food. One of the things that I do to connect to Somali culture um, is to make anjera or laha. Uh, however, it has nothing on my aunties or my dad's. My partner actually makes better laha than I do. And another thing we love is our music. Dr. Awais listens to classic Somali music that connects him to his youth spent in Mogadishu. When a person flees their home country and comes to a new place, they become homesick. So, 
سانس بباری بین رمانه دی وقتی انصقات وقتی آدم عنها اون هلیکرین یا and the thing that connects me to my culture is Somali arts. I especially like the classical Somali music and songs that reminds me of my youth and childhood that are so, so memorable. <laughs> Listen to the music because it reminds me of a time when Somalia was peaceful. It is a way for me to remember the people I left behind. Our music scene is diverse. In the 70s, Mogadishu, the capital, had a thriving disco scene. I personally grew up with modern Somali musicians who were bold and experimented with language. One of them recently went viral. Even my non-Somali friends were singing her song. But I can't help but feel bittersweet. And as I'm growing older, I'm kind of scared. I'm scared I'm losing some of my dakhan, my Somali culture, especially in a country like Australia that is geographically and culturally further away from our homeland. I want to learn more about the rich history of Somalia and get better at the language too. How did you learn Somali? Well, I had Perhaps it's the writers in us because Naima is also passionate about learning more of the Somali language. I'm ashamed to admit that I probably qualify as the Hoya Matalo generation. In other words, Somalis who might just a little bit struggle with speaking the language fluently. The thing that's really been connecting me to Somali culture lately is taking a deep dive into Somali poetry and oral traditions. Looking at poets like Hadrawi and others, it's been challenging, but it's but it's also allowing me to connect with the Somali language in a more in in a much more deep way so it's been good to have a chance to challenge myself and learn more about language through poetry and as awale will tell you poetry is really at the heart of somali storytelling i recently did a spoken word performance at an islamic conference during uh, the refugee week this year and most attendees were somalis uh, kids from somalia eritrea and other islamic communities i taught them a somali lullaby <laughs> And kids loved it. Shake or shake or shake a harir. Shake or shake a shake a harir. Yellow way, this shake a shake it the way it did. Which is the Somali version of uh, Once Upon a Time. Uh, my connection to the Somali culture is through stories. I'm a storyteller. I grew up listening to Somali folk tale stories from my grandmother. I used to buy Somali storybooks and uh, I used to translate Somali stories to Arabic or English to share it with my network of young people. 
There really is something to be said about the storytelling that comes from the women in the Somali community. They are my biggest teachers, and because of what they taught me, I wanted to share that knowledge with our younger generation. So recently, I co-curated a Somali art exhibition in Melbourne called Akal. Akal is the name of a nomadic hut and was also an installation that was built by a traditional Somali weaver. With the help of women and children in the community, it took more than 50 hours to make, binding branches together and weaving fabrics to bring it all to life. My mum grew up in an akal that she made with her mum. I have a good memory. My mother, when she took me um, from the village to go to the, um, her family that has a beautiful akal, and my mother, she told me, this is the akal that when I got married, I was half the, you know, uh, first the akal I have. And it's so beautiful inside when I went there. Still, I remember how it was beautiful. And I asked her what it was like seeing one again in Melbourne so many years later. When I see the akal, it reminds me of my culture, it reminds me even my mother. I feel emotional, I feel happy. I saw other older Somali women have similar emotional responses to the akal installation. Some of them even cried because it reminded them of their childhood and homeland. Watching elders in my community travel back to their childhoods in Somalia was really rewarding. I wanted to do this show this year because it's been over two decades since the Civil War. I feel that we finally have time to stop and breathe. To do art and reflect on the beauty in our culture and our rich history despite being thousands of kilometres away from Somalia. But sometimes, speaking of Somalia and the culture just makes me yearn to go back one day. Wandering in the source of Muktisho, the chatter of people, the smell of Luban, frankincense, the sound of goats, the noise of the city, the relentless beeping. and to feel my feet in the sand of Lido Beach, eat fresh fish from the Indian Ocean, and see Somali kids kicking a football in the shallows of the water. We all dream about someday going back and living in Somalia. If I had the opportunity to return to Somalia and it was peaceful, I would love it. Sabtu 
The reason is because that's where I began my life. I was born there, my parents were born there, and their parents too. It is where my ancestry is. It's a place where I know the climate, the people, the language, and the soil. I've actually never been to Somalia before. It's kind of embarrassing, but also very sad because my Hoya is from Johar and my Abu is from Mogadishu, and I have yet to see any of that. One day I would love to see the things my mother and my father saw when they were kids. I don't know, it, it would give me so much more perspective in life. And I've got so much family in Somalia that I have still not connected with. And I think honestly, if I were to one day be able to have that opportunity to go to Somalia, see my family and get connected to my roots, my heart would be so full. One day, I, I definitely think in the next few years, I would love to visit my family in Somalia. If I could live in Somalia, I would live in Muqdisho, learn the language, and I think that's one of my dreams in life. And inshallah, in the next year or so, that's something I'm going to make happen. I'm going to manifest it. <laughs> That story was produced by Najma Sambal. Karishma Luthria was the supervising producer. Do you want to meet and get to know fellow emerging audio makers? Join the All The Best team at the Everly Hotel from 6pm on Monday, June 26 to network, share ideas, and most importantly, have some fun. If you aren't local to Sydney, you can join us online the following night. Tuesday, June 27th, for our winter pitch workshop and a seminar on adapting written work to audio. In our next story, Mick speaks with his late father, Ken, who was diagnosed with dementia. Together, they explore how sometimes the smallest stories have the most impact as they shape and live on through family. Hello, my name is Ken. Yeah, I, I grew up in the historic town Castlemaine, uh, and my, my 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 mother stayed at home and ran a very nice house, and worked very hard at it, and um, very nice studio. Uh, and my my father was a, a an auto automotive um, expert, really. He was, a mechanic, uh, and had a very good and strong re reputation. And people drove people drove miles to have their car fixed by by him. And the, see the oh no, you can't see them. Outside there's three, uh, part four workshop manuals of early cars that were gone and dad used to sit, sit in front of the fire curl, curl up and read his magazine so i've kept some of them as a memento of the hard one application to become an a-grade engineer yeah.
The first primary school I went to was Castlemaine North. Can you remember what year you started primary school? I think it would have been 43 or 44 even. It, it, it was a big, big school uh, and I, I felt quite lonely in it. Anyway, um, in, in my first day there, I was too shy, as I've always been too shy. I was too, too shy to um, ask to go to the toilet. And I wet myself. So she made me stand on the seat, dripping wet, and I had to sing the kindergarten song with wet pants. Uh, and she took great pleasure in breaking me down. Not that I needed breaking down, I needed opening up. I, I had trouble with re relating to other kids at school and I was attacked and stoned and thrown things at as though there was something physically wrong with me and I had to be destroyed. <laughs> So the stones themselves, I mean, if they, I got hit a few times, and some of the stones are quite big. Uh, I don't think they tried to kill me. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't try to kill me. But if you'd been hit in a, tem a temple or something, you, you might just do that. Um, anyway, Dad saw what was happening and he ran out and chased them home. And they, they, never, came, they never tried that again. Um, but it was a bit, a bit scary at the time. Um, so it was a bit of a death blow to being a social person, actually, when you think about it. If, if, if I'd had more social confidence, it would have been quite different. But I didn't have a happy identity by any means. Um, all right. So have you had a fairly quiet upbringing compared to that sort of... Yeah, I mean I never had as... like I still experienced some trauma and stuff as a kid, especially as a teenager I think. Yeah. I think we, living here sheltered us a little bit. Um, but going to high school that was... there was some trauma definitely. But, was he bullying? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was bullied a lot. Yeah, anyway, I don't want to talk. It's no. not about me. No. Um, yeah. Sure, you didn't. Because I was like you, though, I was too shy, I was too passive yeah, to do anything about it. Yeah, and I passed it. it on, too, I think, to you. Uh, why did you have to move to Newstead? Because my, my father moved to Newstead because he, he liked the environment, he, he liked the, um, the managerial skills necessary to make it run well and, um, and he liked the, the smaller number. So yeah. it was for, for, for Grandpa's work? 
your dad's work. Yeah. That's the reason why you moved. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. When when we moved to Newstead, I went to to uh, the Newstead Primary School. Yeah. So I I was uh, much much happier, and my father was happy because he he moved in into the managership of one of the earlier garages he had contact with, and uh, I was happier, and my sister was happier, and my my brothers were happier. Newstead was like like being liberated, and there was only 86 people in, in the whole school. Uh, but every, everybody knew knew everybody, and everybody was helpful. And this girl wrote me a note on the first day at the school saying, "I love you," <laughs> and I, I felt as though my heart was going to come out of my chest. <laughs> To have this, the girl who I looked at when I first went in, oh, what a pretty girl, <laughs> whatever, just what a little kid needed. Um, but but she was uh, she was just so beautiful, you know. And um, and then I wanted to repay her for being so friendly. And I said, would you like a ride on my bike? And I dink you home. And it was most. You know, it was embarrassing for her because the bike was doing that, <laughs> and so on. Yeah, it was a very sunny, happy day that day. So actually, just being somebody is not bad. That story was produced by Michael Everett. Both of this week's pieces were produced as part of the Wheeler Centre's Signal Boost program, supported by the Ian Potter Foundation. Find out more at wheelercentre.com slash signalboost. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mal Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.